Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Broad Eye podcast. My name is Dr. Bruno Fernandez. I will be the host today and our guest is Dr. Arthur Cummings, uh, refractive and cataract surgeon uh, from Dublin. Uh, Dr. Cummings, thanks for accepting our invite. It's a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you, Bruno. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm looking forward to the conversation. I know you and Sean have a very broad perspective on things. It'll be interesting to see where it goes. Indeed. Uh, well, let's talk about a, a bit about yourself first. You know, like you, you, you're based off Dublin now, but you were not born there, right? So what brought you here? So yes, 23 years ago, I was working in South Africa as a, an ophthalmologist doing retinal surgery, doing LASIK and doing cataracts. And the only one that I wasn't doing in a very scientific method, we were doing lots of cases, but I wasn't doing it very scientifically, was LASIK. We were just doing so much of it, and we thought we knew what we were doing. And so this further learning opportunity arose in Dublin to come to a clinic, the Wellington Eye Clinic, which is specifically a refractive clinic. And that was the first reason. The second reason is we thought this would be a, a wonderful experience for the family. And what we told ourselves was it's only a decision. You know, if we came over and decided it wasn't for us, we simply go back. So that was nice. The family certainly had the opportunity to have a, an exciting time. And then the other thing in the back of both my wife and my minds were the fact that there were some concerns about security in South Africa and maybe just about how the future looked for our two young sons. And so we decided we're going to take the, the opportunity for 18 months, do this fellowship, and see what transpires. And as they say, the, you know, the rest is history. We loved it here and we, we decided to stay. So yeah, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, I, I can certainly relate to that safety part. I'm, I'm also from, from another country in Brazil and one of the main reasons made me move to Canada was uh, just, just being a safer place in order to raise a family. Absolutely. You know, people who haven't had that experience mightn't quite understand it, but if you speak to colleagues and friends of yours and mine living in areas where they've had um they've been very close to crime or you know life-threatening situations it's it's not it's not a great place to raise a family so i mean we still have family there and we have lots of friends there so we certainly hope things will improve but um we, we're not sorry about the, the move that we made and Another thing that changed in your, in, in your life, it seems that you, you, you are part of one of the few uh, uh, percentage of ophthalmologists that uh, also have some sort of entrepreneurial experience and, and gets involved in the development of new technologies. Do you like to talk a bit about that? Yeah, I think so. You know, a very good friend of mine was the senior partner in the practice in South Africa. And he said to me one day, he said to me, you know, you're very enthusiastic. And he said, give it 10 years and you'll be bored like everyone else. And, and I thought to myself, no, no, no. My parents worked way too hard to put me through college and I've got to make sure I'm not going to remain bored. And I think that decision was one of the best things I could have done because the one thing that keeps you really interested in your day-to-day -day job is when you have additional things riding on the back of it, like you're busy with a study or you're looking at a new product or a new, a new device. It just keeps things really exciting. So um, with companies, I've worked with a number of companies along the way. There's some things we've done along the lines of 
developing nomograms for the laser that I use called the Wellington nomogram. And then I've been on a number of medical advisory boards that are involved with laser vision correction or IOLs and diagnostic technologies. And as I say, I just really enjoy that because it keeps you thinking, it keeps you, keeps you on your toes. And then personally for me, you know, when I'd done the fellowship here in Dublin and eventually got back to doing cataract surgery, I'd sort of forgotten that cataract surgery wasn't refractive surgery. So I was really disappointed with the um, refractive results we were getting on cataract surgeries in patients that had a previous laser. So we decided to think it through really carefully. And a colleague and I, also an ophthalmologist, um, developed a, a protocol with a new device that we, we put together with ray tracing and started a company called ClearSight and got some parastatal support. And eventually, um, we're allowed to spin it out into a startup. And eventually, one of the corporate corporates acquired it from us. And, you know, we're hoping at some point we'll see it in in our office one day as a, as a finished product. But, you know, that project took us five years, perhaps. And on a daily basis, we were excited by small little breakthroughs or you were kept very alive by bumping your head with many of these projects you know, the <laughs> two or three times a year, you think the project is dead. So it really keeps you alive. So yeah, I, I've always enjoyed that role. Yeah, I think having like that different perspectives, it really, really helps us put in someone else's shoes. Really, sometimes people think that maybe the life of a businessman, it's easier than the life of a doctor and businessman thinks the life of a doctor, it's easier. But once we've done both, we know that there's no easy way right, to get things done. <laughs> Isn't that right? That's yeah. absolutely right. There's as much to learn about business as there is to learn about ophthalmology. It's all medicine. It's it's a massive field. And you've been a, a member of a, of, of a board of directors at Alcon, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, uh, I'm just curious, like what it means exactly like, to be the member of a board. Like I mean, I guess like you're there because of your knowledge, you know, like and and your experience as a doctor. But uh, what it is exactly, you know, like they ask you advice and, you know, you, they, they follow it. Like, Yeah, that's a super mm -hmm. interesting question, Bruno. Um, and it's one that I never would have expected ever to be, have been asked because, you know, you don't expect as an ophthalmologist to line up on a board of directors. First of all, let me tell you where it started is being on medical advisory boards. I, I often went to them in a selfish way, in fact, to learn. Because first of all, there were very smart ophthalmologists around me giving their opinions too. But also the people that you're working with that are in these companies are smart. They're really smart. And all they're doing is they're bouncing ideas off us. And they're looking for ideas around patient acceptance, maybe usability from the ophthalmologist's point of view or the tech or the nurse's point of view. They're thinking about the commercialization of this. You know, would it work in the, in the real world? And will our patients pay for these improvements? And I think one of the things, I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but I never felt being on an advisory board that I had to speak all the time. I was very, very happy sitting, listening and assimilating. And then eventually when someone does ask you a question, you can give an answer that's, that's been well thought out. And so I've always done it like that. And, you know, they asked me back, so I figured I was, I was doing my part. But when I was invited to the board of directors, so the board of directors of Alcon is a very, very different situation. It's a public company. It's extremely smart individuals. I mean, I've um, humbled 
by the company I keep over there. I'm the only MD on the board. The rest are all, some are CEOs of other public companies, others are on other boards, they're vice chairmen of, of all public companies. I think of the 10 directors, um, all of the others are on the boards of more than just Alcon, they're on many boards. And between the other nine, they're on something like 27 public boards. So it's a very, very smart group of people and I learn enormously from them. And when I went through the process of being recruited for the board, I recall asking the chairman of the board and the CEO Alcon, I said, you know, you've got a choice of thousands of people you could ask. I, before I'm comfortable with this, you've got to tell me why you've, you've asked me to do this role because a lot of people can do what you've asked me to do. And they said something really interesting that I'll never forget and I've tried to teach my children is They've said, because you tend to listen more than you speak. And when you, sp and when you do speak, you say something that, it, that makes sense. So certainly on the board, I'm not giving much advice, is they've got very, very smart people around them. But whenever something comes up that is in the medical space or specifically in ophthalmological space, and they just want more clarity on it, then I give them those opinions then. And I've done a few business courses. I did physician CEOs some years ago at Kellogg, and that was an amazing experience too. So incredibly, on occasion, some of my learning that I picked up there, and I'm very interested in current affairs, not politics, but more in business and what the markets are doing and what's happening in innovation. And so I would sometimes have a point of view, which when I say it, I think, my word, you know, should I be saying this in this company? And then suddenly someone looks at it and says, wow, yeah, we should have thought about that. So in many ways, when non-medical people speak to us about what we do, they say something that they may think is silly, but in fact, it's so left field that it makes you think differently about it. So it's a super experience. I'm really enjoying it. It's, it's fabulous. I'm, I'm learning every time I have a meeting in, with a board. Yeah, that must have been a really enriching experience indeed. And it's good words of advice there for audience. You know, like I mean, listen more and you know, only speak when you have sure that you know what you add, what you're going to add. You know, like I mean, it's really solid. Uh, so I mean, all the accomplishments that you've mentioned so far, like it doesn't come that much as a surprise that you've been uh, elected like the one of ophthalmologists, like top 100, like most influential ophthalmologists, and. Uh, uh, what did, what did what did it change you know like i mean in your life like did it help you in any way like i mean to to receive that honor i think those things do help you um they do because they increase your um people are more aware of you but it's very very humbling and it's it's very much appreciated obviously but i'm very aware of the fact that the list is a subjective opinion and i feel honored that i know the right people because there are thousands of other people that could make that list quite easily. There are many that are smarter, that have worked just as hard, that just simply aren't as well known yet or haven't got the breaks. But their time will come. So I personally see that list of a bit of fun. I think it's given ophthalmology's own list of people to inspire the rest of us. And the bottom line for me is certainly don't take it too seriously, whether you're on the list or you're not on the list. It's, it's not a serious thing. Just simply celebrate the desire to be better than you were yesterday. I mean, that's the way I see it. Yeah, that's that's, that's very cool. Uh, so you you're a refractive surgeon. Uh, I wonder if you can just 
really changed gears here and then maybe just to explain to our audience uh, as you can imagine it's very broad right so of course we have a lot of ophthalmologists but we have a lot of patients also and people that don't know uh, uh, what ophthalmologists do that they're well so what refractive surgery is like most people would like instantaneously associate that with like laser but I guess it's more than that so if you could just like break down in very simple words that like, what it is like into- absolutely um, yeah, it's a very good point. Um, very few people actually know what refractive surgery is. People know what LASIK is maybe, or cataract surgery, but they don't really know what refractive surgery is. So we, we're looking for a better term. Um, but in a nutshell, refractive surgery is vision correction surgery. So that is making people see better using surgical approaches, whether they be lasers or inlays or intraocular lenses or phakic lenses. So it's just doing something other than glasses or contact lenses to allow you to see permanently well and without any help. So another way of thinking about it is we speak about people who are seeing with contact lenses or glasses as renting their vision, where someone who has had refractive surgery owns their vision. It's theirs. They wake up in the morning and it's there. They wake up at midnight and it's theirs. So that's, that's the, the, the basis of it. And, you know, at the moment, we're only scratching the surface. The numbers globally who are afflicted by refractive errors is absolutely enormous. The WHO says that the biggest cause of vision impairment is uncorrected refractive error at 45%, mm. and then cataract at 30 to 35%. So many of us refractive surgeons see cataract as refractive. So potentially we're looking at 75 to 80% of the global burden of vision impairment is some sort of refractive issue. And looking at it another way, AMD, macular degeneration is maybe 2%, glaucomas might be 2%, uncorrected refractive error and cataract of 40 times more. You know, it's, it's, it's a big global burden. If you think about it another way, one third of the world today, right now, is short-sighted. And by the year 2050, which is only 30 years away now, half of the world is short-sighted. And right now today, 2 billion people have presbyopia, which means they can't see up close without glasses. Now, most people are going to think, well, just get a pair of glasses. But the truth is that for many of these people all over the world, there is no access to glasses. Or if you get them, they get stolen or broken or, um, or there's just this social stigma that you can't wear them. So this pool of people potentially seeking correction in the future is absolutely enormous. And it's way too big for the current ophthalmic workforce to address even in the slightest fashion. And that's why um, we're so interested in, in, in the World College of Refractive Surgery. And the therapy, right? Like if you can put it that way for refractive errors has always been like through a device, right? Like just glasses or contact lenses or surgery. But recently, there's been this movement of like uh, uh, medical therapy for refractive errors, like I mean, both myopia and presbyopia. Uh, what's your take on this? Like, do you think this is this is something worth pursuing? Like, I mean, is it is it something that's going to be useful? Like, I mean, to tackle this gigantic global problem? I think that's a fantastic question. So you're absolutely right. I think today you can't really think about being a refractive surgeon without thinking about myopia control. So for those of your audience who don't know, as you heard a moment ago, the world's becoming very much short-sighted. And we can start identifying these children at, a, at quite a young age. And all you would do in the past 
is give new glasses as they need them and just watch them become more and more short-sighted. And short-sightedness alone is not the issue, but as you become more short-sighted, so you, you start making your eyes less healthy. You're far more inclined to get cataract, to get glaucoma, to get retinal attachment. There are all sorts of problems that accrue as you become more short-sighted. So that's the first one. I think you're absolutely right. Medical therapy there can go a long way to limit the level of myopia that you eventually um, achieve. And then I think the other topic you're referring to is, is very topical. I think it's just been FDA approved, the new um, drop called Viewity. And I think there's seven in the pipeline from other companies. So this is a drop that you can use um, for someone who has very good distance vision. They've always seen well all their lives. And then in their mid-40s, somewhere around there, they start struggling to read. And now they're looking for reading glasses. And anyone who's been in this situation knows that you're always losing them or breaking them or you can't find them or you forgot them. So it's quite a pain. And what these drops do is you put the drop in your eye and for the next number of hours, depending on the concentration of the, of the, of the drop, um, you might get three hours, you might get six hours, you might get more. But it allows you to see up close without really losing anything for distance. So it makes you think you, you're young again. Someone is 50 can use these drops and they, they might think they're 35 again in the way their eyes are working. So I think what that's going to do is I personally think it's going to absolutely make people aware that there is a way to improve your eyesight that is not a pair of spectacles. And I think for many people, that's going to be an eye opener. People have always known with LASIK, um, LASIK's well known. And so with LASIK, people know you can correct someone who can't see far. You can correct their distance vision. But very few people, even those who have had LASIK done, actually know you can treat an emetrope and make one eye slightly short-sighted and give them blended vision. So it's not, it's not remotely as well known. And I think if you start using the drops and you get a great result with them, but at some point you, 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 know, you get bored with using drops all the time and you decide, I'd like this on a full-time basis, it opens that door. So I think it's going to massively increase the number of patients coming to ophthalmologists seeking help for near vision. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, and, and another interesting thing, you know, despite the size of the problem, as you mentioned already, right, so it's like it might be the, the most uh, prevalent ophthalmological condition, uh, I believe like refractive uh, surgery as a specialty hasn't wasn't recognized until very recently. I think it might have been the latest like sort of specialty to be recognized as one. Uh, and you've been involved on. I think you've been a founder of the of the college uh, refractive uh, the, the work college of uh, refractive surgeons. And let's uh, share with us like a bit of the, the experience. Like I mean, why it took so long? Like I mean, for that sort of specialty to be recognized, and what was the main mission of uh, behind creating this college? Oh man, I love your questions, Bruno. That's such a good question. Is when we started speaking to potential founders around the world all the true refractive surgeons said exactly the same thing, said, why is it taking so long? And, you know, I'm for first and foremost an ophthalmologist. I'm retinal trained. Um, I'm very, very thankful for what ophthalmology does for society and for humanity. Um, but at the end of the day, ophthalmology takes care of pathology. We've got a problem. We go in and have it fixed and we, we're back on track again. Refractive surgery is in a different space. 
we're not taking care of pathology unless you see myopia as pathology. But generally speaking, you've got to think about refractive surgery as being performance surgery. It's about performance. It's about giving people the tools to have better jobs, to make better progress socially, to be able to play sports, to learn more and get better, get better jobs and pay more taxes. So it's, it's, it's really got a lot of impact on society. Um, but when you have pathology, your mindset's all about avoiding loss. You just want to prevent loss. That's all you want to do. Where refractive surgery is all about achieving gain. And there's a very well-known behavioral economist. He's won the Nobel Prize, um, Daniel Kahneman, who speaks about loss aversion theory and explains to you very, very nicely how all of us have this bias towards we prevent loss or we see the prevention of losing something as being much more important than the potential of gaining something. So that's why refractive surgery is so, so different. First of all, you're in this performance space. Second thing is you're working on people who have alternatives. They can wear glasses or contact lenses. They, they just don't want to wear them anymore, but they can to function. Um, they're very demanding because they're paying out of pocket. You cannot make simple mistakes or silly mistakes. You've got to be on top of your game. There is, when you do a refractive lens exchange or a, a custom lens replacement, of course, you need to be able to address, uh, deal with the, the complications, but you're not even thinking about the complications because you've got to be at that level of, of consistently good surgery that you now are far more um, concerned with, have I chosen the right lens and am I going to hit target? So I think those are the key things that, that make it so different. And um, with all respect to all the societies I belong to, I belong to a huge number of societies around the world is the refractive part of the societies has always been almost an afterthought. You know, it's for the guys who, who don't want to do other things. They sort of land up being refractive. And we think the days of someone doing a LASIK on Friday afternoon quickly just to supplement um, their income, but they don't really have an interest, is much the same as someone doing a macular hole. I'll just do a macular hole. If, you know, I think I might do a macular hole. It doesn't work like that. Why do we think it's okay for people not to take refractive surgery seriously and then go and do surgery on young people who are economically active, who by the very nature of them looking for surgery are trying to improve themselves. And that's okay to have an, someone who's not really interested and who's just there for the, for the fun. That's okay. But if we had to go and do a case, obviously we wouldn't, but a case like a macular hole or a retinal detachment without the necessary training and mindset, it would be absolutely frowned upon. You'd probably be disbarred, you know? So we, I just don't get that. So the people who've got involved in founding the college are very aware that refractive surgery needs to be its own specialty. If, if you think that refractive surgery has already achieved what it can, then the college is not for you. But if you're someone who thinks, oh no, refractive surgery is scratching the surface at the moment we're treating some people who can afford it, but heavens, if we get this thing right and we treat many, many more of those who can afford it, but also millions more who can't afford it and have never thought about it, now we start having an impact at, at a grassroots level and, and you change the course of humanity. So it's got that kind of potential. And it's so interesting that if you, if you meet someone at a, at a social gathering 
and someone says to you, what do you do for a living? And you say, I'm an ophthalmologist. Nine out of 10 times, the first question they ask you is, do you do LASIK? So the general population are aware of the value of a vision correction, but amongst our colleagues and amongst optometry is, you know, we've got work to do to convince them about how effective it is. So th those, are, those are the key reasons. Yeah, and then you, you, you touched on, on, on something there that it's, it's, it's exactly my next question, because like the, the college that was founded, it is not only uh, an accrediting or a regulating body, it is it, it also have, it, it also helps, right? Like, I mean, people, and you do have some programs and, or at least have the goal to, uh, to help uh, uh, more people have, received the benefits of refractive surgery and instead of like seeing that more as a luxury for a few. Absolutely. So one of the major problems, my, my son, my older son, he is doing ophthalmology at the moment and in Ireland, it's a seven year course after seven years of medicine. So it's, it's his 13th year of 14 and he's going to come out of the seven years, a very, very accomplished ophthalmologist, but he won't have the faintest idea of anything refractive not seen a multifocal, not seen a toric, not done a LASIK, not seen a PRK, not seen an ICL, doesn't manage dry either way a refractive surgeon does, doesn't have the, the, the skills yet of speaking to a patient who is entrusting their vision and their future to you. Um, so we need, to, we need to train young doctors to become refractive surgeons. And there aren't that many opportunities and partially we to blame you know, as refractive surgeons, most are in private practice. So if a young doctor comes and says, I want to spend time with you, um, people are often reluctant because they think this person might become competition once you've trained them down the road. And we don't see it that way at all. We think the more well-trained refractive surgeons there are, the more the field is going to grow. Look at the, look at the problem in front of us. We said there are 2 billion presbobes. There are 30% of the population is is myopic. You know, there's so much work to be done in, in, in my lifetime and certainly in the next lifetime, we won't get to the point where the world is seeing without spectacles. That's not going to happen, but we need to, we need to make an impact. Yeah, no, most definitely. Uh, so what does it, does it take like to, to join the, the college? Do, do you need to be an ophthalmologist? Like, and then do you need to have like some specialty training in refractive surgery or is there opportunity for, for, for people that are not so well-trained like to help anyhow? No, no. Um, so even though, you know, so what happened with establishing this as a specialty, it's still in its infancy. It, it happened on the 2nd of July um, this year, the company was formed. It's a company that's currently um, based in the US. It can move anywhere down the road, but the US is a very good place to set up these sorts of corporations. It has, it's a public benefit corporation, which means you can make decisions down the road that are not purely financial decisions, but you can make decisions that are good for the company and good for the, the beneficiaries of the company. So um, there are 90 founders, the 93 founders, all of them are leaders in refractive surgery on a global basis. They come from 32 different countries and the minority comes from the US. So it was always a vision to make this not a US-based organization, but a global organization. And so the next step now is, so the founders have a founders meeting coming up soon. 
And that's when we start putting ideas together. We have many ideas of how we think it can happen and many structures, but now that we have 90 founders on board, we have to sit and see how do we put the curriculum together? We have lots of ideas. We have lots of work done already. How do we accredit surgeons? How do we accredit facilities? How do we certify people? And then the other arm, as you alluded to, is all about impact. How do we measure impact? So one of the, the world's foremost investors is a man called Ronald Cohen, who in fact was knighted. And he founded one of the first VC companies in the UK. In the last 10 years of his life, he has spent educating people about impact investing. And this is why many companies today have much more than just the shareholders interested at heart. They've also got to look at what are we doing for the environment? What are we doing for those who are, you know, who are not quite as fortunate? So it's a very good idea that people are starting to look wider and how can they do more good? And so with the impact part of this is it's a very good way to fund the college and to fund the projects you're doing. So the way we see this working is having the ability to go into an area and treat lots of people. The way you would do a cataract camp, treat a lot of people for their vision correction issues with doctors who are busy training. They're ophthalmologists. So to, to be a member of the college, you've got to be an ophthalmologist. So it's not a shortcut by any means. This is on top of ophthalmology. So you've done your residency. Um, the, the college has the ability to facilitate um, fellowships. They have the ability to accreditate different courses. So there's so many people have done so much good work around the world, especially in the last two years. I'm sure you're aware of Ophthalma University, um, Sinjab Academy. There's so many of them. People have put these programs together and you can attend them and it's for your own gain. That's all. Not, nowhere along the way do you get accredited and as an overseeing body say, right, once you've done those things, you've actually done the coursework for refractive surgery. Now all we need to do is make sure you've had the clinical exposure um, through whatever is, makes most sense for that person. And then, so that's the College of Refractive Surgery. There's a second arm to it called the Visual Freedom Foundation. And the way we see this is that any bird to fly well um, needs two wings. And this is the same sort of concept. On the one side, you've got the tools needed to train more refractive surgeons, to have the right mindset, to have the right tools and skill sets to do refractive surgery. And then on the other hand, with the Visual Freedom Foundation, this is an avenue where you can, you can work with charities and you can raise funds and you can now start doing charitable work um, all over the place. And one of the, the visionaries is Roger Zaldivar from Argentina. And Roger had a very nice idea and he said, you know, we keep on thinking about doing this work only in developing countries, but each of us, even if you're living in Canada or Ireland, I mean, in my own clinic, there would be people who live within a five kilometer radius of my clinic who couldn't afford to come to the clinic. Um, so don't have vision correction on their radar. And if refractive surgeons collectively, and this is part of what the college wants to do, is on a monthly basis, every member of the, of the College of Refractive Surgery treats one person per month from the community who someone's identified as a young, good prospect for football or for soccer or for tennis or for whatever. Um, you know, then you start, you start getting the goodwill too and people start seeing what the value of refractive surgery is. 
So we think we can have an impact both in the developing world, but also in the in the developed world, in our own cities that we live and work in. Uh, yeah, that's, that's that's so interesting you mentioned that because like I also was born in a third world country and now live in Canada and like you always think that you know like to do good you need to go far but you know across the corner like you know, you're definitely going to be able to find someone that could really use uh, uh, that kind of philanthropy initiative. In any so Bruno, yeah, you're you're 100 right. So one thing we're very very aware of: those people who have clinics across the world who are doing refractive surgery, they've worked really hard to get there, and they've they've taken risk and they've taken, um, you know, with costs and this kind of thing. So the last thing we want to do is go into an area where there is a refractive surgeon who is running their practice with patients who are paying, and then go in there and treat all the patients at no cost. That's that's not the idea whatsoever. So we want to try and help everyone run a, an effective practice. But what we want to do is help those who are never, ever going to have the access to refractive surgery. So in many ways, it works well because you, first of all, get the training for the doctors and learning. But the second thing is you, you're enriching these people. You're changing their lives. You know, as I said to you earlier, it, it changes their lives. If, if you've been involved with refractive surgery, so many patients would say to you, it was life-changing, you know, besides getting married or having a baby, this was like the thing that changed my life most. So we've got to do more, you know, to look back one day and realize that we might've treated 50,000 people, um, but it's a very small impact for, that's all you've done. You've treated people who had access to, it was a luxury and they could do it. They could afford it. And I don't think that's how we want to be remembered. I think for this era in time, where technology is as good as it is, where industry is very happy to work with us, where there's so much money in the world that can be put to good use in terms of philanthropy, um, it wouldn't be right for us to, in 50 years' time, still see that the penetration of refractive surgery is less than 1%, and people are still walking around not seeing because of the social stigma of wearing glasses where they happen to be. So, yeah, we, we really want to try and be good ancestors. That's the bottom line. I want to be a good ancestor that when you look back one day, what we've collectively done has, has changed the course of, of many people's lives. Indeed. Dr. Cummings, like, so we're we are almost uh, wrapping this up. Uh, I'd like to ask you one last question. So as we mentioned already, like when you think refractive surgery, most people think laser. And it, it has indeed been the most used way like to fix the refractive error surgically at least um so if for people in the future you know like, do you see any new technology coming and eventually replacing laser as a way to to fix the refractive error yeah there's some very interesting things in the pipeline so whether they'll achieve what we think they may is a different story but the one that's very exciting is something called refractive indexing and it's where you use a laser but all this laser does is it changes the refractive index. So for those of your listeners who aren't, um, aren't optically minded, what LASIK does is LASIK changes the shape of the cornea, the front of your eye, and that's what focuses the light differently. Um, so it changes the shape, and if you measure the eye on a, on a device that measures the shape, you'll see the shape change. Um, but refractive indexing removes nothing, so the cornea doesn't get thinner where you remove tissue, and it doesn't change the shape. 
it simply changes the, the breaking power, the refractive power of the corneal tissue. And I mean, it sounds remarkable. It sounds like the safety profile will be absolutely enormous. I don't know exactly what range it could, it could treat, but in the early papers and studies that I read, they're getting effects both for presbyopia, getting, you know, getting rid of reading glasses, and for correcting myopia. And that just sounds amazingly exciting. Um, you, you're basically doing nothing to the cornea surgically. You're just changing the, the refractive index of the cornea. It's, it's, that is really science fiction. Yeah, very cool. It's, it's, ophthalmology is so interesting, right? Like, I mean, I'm a bit biased, obviously, because that's the specialty that I'm more exposed to, but it's, it's just crazy, like, I mean, how, how much and how fast, like, it evolves, you know? It's been about 10 years that I haven't practiced, and, like, I mean, the things that people do nowadays, it really sounds like science fiction compared to what I was used to during my training. That's amazing, Bruno. You know, so as ophthalmologists, we just take it for granted because we just, you, you grow with the innovation. But um, when you look at other specialties and they would sometimes comment, and so they would make us aware that things have been a lot more the same for them and less change. But another place that's been fascinating is working with companies, with the industry. And there are many people in ophthalmology today who were in ophthalmology 20, 30 years ago. And because of the way they did in their business careers, they were headhunted by companies outside of ophthalmology. And then one day they get back into ophthalmology again. And they, anyone who's come back to ophthalmology will tell you it's the most exciting space in, in the healthcare space. And that there's, there's no other field that evolves at quite the same pace. And if you see the job ahead of us, you know, we would evolve even more quickly to, to bring these benefits of, of vision correction to more people. Very cool. Dr. Camis, on take any more of your time. Uh, it was a true pleasure, like sharing with you. Uh, thank you very much for sharing those uh, words of wisdom and and all the experience that you've acquired, like over the years. Uh, thank you very much for what you do, and you're gonna most definitely continue to do. <laughs> Bruno, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, um, speaking with you and getting to know you. All right, have a good one. Take care. Thank Bye. you. Take care. Bye bye. And that concludes today's episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Of course, ratings and reviews are always welcome. And you can certainly share this episode with any of your colleagues or friends who might enjoy it. Thanks for listening.